Hello, welcome to Explain Me. My name's Patty Johnson. And I'm William Powhaita. Some of you might know me from Art F City, an art blog I founded in 2005. And some of you may know me from my artwork about the art world. Let's start about why we're doing this thing. First, I think it's because both of us wanted to find out what it would be like to pair the perspective of an artist and a critic, because that's something that's rarely represented in the art world. Second, I think we both believe that it's really important to try and contextualize art within a political environment um, that we haven't experienced ever before. You know, so there's the whole Trump thing, which is really super shitty, but also uh, inequality is really fucking up the market right now. And so we have this situation where there's more art that's ever being made than ever before, but only a fraction of it ever sort of gets discussed or or is is seen in some of the, the larger galleries. So we, we want to attempt to get to some of the politics, but more importantly, we want to get to some of the moral responsibilities we have as a community. Um, and it's important that as a community, we find ways to give ourselves agency so that we don't feel complicit. I agree. And, you know, I, I think it's worth pointing out that, you know, the levels of income and wealth inequality we're experiencing right now, I don't think we've ever seen since, you know, the kind of Ancien regime in France, you know, in pre-industrial times. So this is a new condition. And it's, it's a condition that's really affecting any sense of like the middle class in this country. So it is it's entirely new. I mean, for our for us. So absolutely. So I think there are a lot of questions that um, that that we want to try and answer. Um, And of course, I think the third reason for us to do this, and uh, certainly it's never one to be underestimated, is the fact that we both have a bit of free time right now. Uh, So uh, Art of City is currently on hiatus, so I have a little bit more time than I normally do. And has that been uh, announced uh, on the blog? It is, yeah. It's on the blog. Um, I'm updating like once a week, but it's not um, super frequent the way that it used to be. Yeah, and my news is a little less public. I was, uh, you know, co-directing an art residency for art students in Dumbo, and the program was shut down after like a 25-year run. So currently I'm uh, doing the adjunct commuter weekly up to Cornell and teaching uh, two classes there. But also uh, we're, we're hosting the podcast in my basement studio where I've had to relocate my studio into the basement of the house I live in. So uh, it's, it's actually a you know, fairly nice space to uh, host a podcast. And actually, there's quite a bit of history um, in terms of basements, because I ran Art F City out of the basement of the apartment I lived in for 12 of its 14 years of existence. So I'm very familiar with basements. Right. And I think it, it feels like home here. Yes. And <laughs> it, it may be a fitting situation to talk about, you know, the topics that we wanted to bring up today around, you know, this idea of money. And part of the reason why I moved into this basement is that it's less than a dollar a square foot. So, um, you know, it, certainly it was a, a decision influenced by the things that you kind of brought up about, um, the art market and you know how it's affecting artists right now right and and we are sort of squarely part of the middle class that's feeling the squeeze so (laughs) um so uh before we get into it a few housekeeping notes i wanted to bring up first i wanted to uh thank our sound professional thomas seeley Without him, we would have no podcast, Uh, so we're very happy to have him. Uh, For those of you looking for our podcasts, you can expect to find them on the first and third Monday of every month. They will appear on iTunes. You can expect a certain amount of freewheeling discussion here, because that's how we roll. Um, But that also means that we want to hear from you. So uh, if you have thoughts or ideas, reach out to us. We're um, on Twitter and respond uh, uh, almost always. And uh, your uh, Art F City on Twitter? Yes. I'm also Pau Haida on Twitter. And I would just add, I'm not evil Pau Haida on Twitter. That is entirely <laughs> someone else's project. The, the strange project that yes. <laughs> only occasionally makes sense. Yeah. And... Uh, If you like our podcast, please rate us on iTunes because that'll help us out. Uh, So let's get into it. So this week's theme is money. And uh, the first topic that I thought was 
something that we've been talking about a lot is Documenta 14. Uh, so Documenta 14 director Adam... The unpronounceable. Unpronounceable last name, Seismic? Seismic? Anyway, uh, I tried. (laughs) I'm just going to put that out there. Uh, So he's led the world-renowned Arquinennial to the brink of bankruptcy after the exhibition ran significantly over budget. According to the German local newspaper HNA, which broke the story, the deficit amounts to roughly... 7 million euros or 8.3 million. Uh, So that's uh, quite a bit of money. And there are a lot of people who are unhappy about that. The statement from the curators uh, was published on Eflux. And they have said, quote, uh, save from one budget adjustment, which was discussed in September 2016 and implemented in the winter of the same year, no additional funds were considered necessary to cover the cost of staging an exhibition in two cities over a total of 163 uh, days of the exhibition, an entire one more entire city, and 60 day, 63 days more than any previous documenta. So it's worth mentioning that normally um, documenta uh, runs in Castle Germany, and that's. And just for our listeners who might not know um, quite as much about Documenta and what a quinquennial is, um, could you maybe explain me just a little bit uh, about what Documenta, what what the exhibition is? Well, a quintennial happens every four years. Um, So uh, that's what happens. And this one is a very highly regarded uh, exhibition that people travel all over the world from to to see this. This year it opened to... um, almost universally negative reviews. I think the the thing about uh, Documenta is that it's typically supposed to be a, maybe a slightly headier show than, you know, some of the other biennials. Mm-hmm. It, it definitely uh, attracts a certain type of arts worker and arts tourist. Gotcha. Uh, I guess that... Uh, some of the things that had come up in terms of this discussion... Uh, one, I think the curators were were upset that they were expected to create a larger and bigger quintennial than ever before, but on the same budget, and that there was a certain kind of exploitation of arts workers that was expected. Uh, second, the budget for this quintennial is m- not some small amount. It's $50 million dollars. With a budget like that, you end up with people making statements like Josh Bear, who runs a, uh, a market uh, analysis newsletter called the uh, Bear Facts that said, in my opinion, documenta curator Adam, whose name shall not be pronounced, seems to have taken a very pretentious position, absolving himself from any blame over the bailout of approximately 5 million euros the city and state around Castle Germany had to come up with to keep Documenta from defaulting on payments and staying out of bankruptcy. Blaming politicians when they are your patron as if you are too pure to worry about such mundane thing as money when they gave you a budget, budget of $50 million only to put on a show sounds bad to me. You know, what did he expect? People to say thank you? So definitely there are a lot of people who are upset and that's something I think you had something to say. Well, you know, I, when, when we were talking earlier, you mentioned that the thing that you didn't know about this document is that the second city, uh, venue was Athens, Greece, which has been notoriously a country mired in debt, dealing with um, austerity politics. And the Documenta curators called that part of the show Lessons from Athens. So it was sort of ironic that here we have, you know, this major show running a massive deficit in a city that's experienced, you know, huge um, uh, deficits. And the only way I could, you know, think about this in a kind of positive light is that the curator was perhaps rejecting a kind of austerity budget and uh, <laughs> free, you know, spending very freely. Um, and, you know, I think to respond to Josh Bear, I mean, there, there, there is a sense that, you know, sometimes maybe like... Um, somehow kind of culture operates above or outside of markets or kind of market realities. Um, You know, so I I can kind of see his point to this and I can understand why people are upset. 
um, uh, you know, but the, the, I guess the kind of political dimension of this is, um, and maybe NATO, you know, what he had to say about this gets into the finer point of like balancing this budget. What were the curator's responsibilities and, um, were they wrong to kind of overextend and make sure that people were paid covering two venues? I mean, are they in the wrong here or, you know, or maybe they're right to reject this kind of um, expectation to do two shows on one budget? Just to explain Mm -hmm. me a little further, uh, Nato Thompson, who you were referencing before is the curator of public time and public time of creative time a public art organization uh so he on facebook had said that it certainly that documenta scandal certainly begs some questions in terms of the finer points of what the curatorial team is in charge of and how the money is spent i mean that ultimately there appears to be more questions to be asked that said having the conversation about the direct political economy and exhibitions biennials festivals is way past due so nato's point i think that at least the first point is the more important one to me like who is making these decisions and like how you know it's not like you just overspent a couple thousand dollars like it's five million dollars like who is signing the checks for these things like how like how did it get this far past um because it just seems like such a disaster and it seems like nobody's at the wheel if that's how far you get into debt. Yeah, and I think NATO's comment is absolutely right. I mean, to have this conversation about direct political economy and how these exhibitions, biennials, and festivals are run, I frankly, I will admit the limits of my ignorance here. I have no idea how these things are financed. I mean, on one hand, I've heard that um, exhibitions like the Venice Biennale are entirely funded by the artists in their galleries to get the work there, to ship it there. And that you had mentioned that the Venice Biennale, uh, its budget is much lower than, you know, Documenta. So I really don't, you know, this this whole problem is sort of illuminating how, like, Documenta is funded. I mean, who pays for it? Um, and the budget overrun itself probably has given us an opportunity to kind of, like, look into the mysterious workings of, of these cultural events that seemingly the money comes from, I, you know, nowhere. I mean, I guess my assumption is that since it's in Europe, that the good taxpayers of Europe and Castle and Germany are funding, you know, this endeavor. Um, and 50 million is, is a lot of money considering our own NEA operating budget in the United States is 187 million roughly, you know, so. Yeah, it's an, it's an enormous amount of money. I don't know, like, um, you know, the 990s in this country, uh, the public disclosures um, tell you a certain amount, but they certainly don't break down, like, uh, you know, how much is spent on um, travel for a budget, like that sort of thing. So um, I I would rather suspect that a lot of that is not made public for Documenta as well, although these things tend to, as in the art world, these things tend to be open secrets, like, you know, like what you said for the Venice Biennale, where uh, things... The exhibition is largely sort of co-funded by the galleries um, who represent the artists who are in that show. So, yeah, and I would love to know how true it is that the galleries also do, you know, what they're paying, you know, because I don't necessarily know. Sometimes the gallery may represent the artist and the artist may end up kind of funding, self-funding, you know, their participation. I think it may be an assumption that the gallery actually covers, you know, all of those costs. We don't know. Well, I mean, the whole thing is, like, really very curious to me. Like, the um, the 2013 Biennale in Venice, uh, curated by Massimiliano Gianni, uh, that, you know, if you read the New York Times reviews, um, or they're not really reviews, they're like... Uh, like little blurbs about the Venice Biennale before they open and they all follow the same structure and you can almost like map one you know every two years that says like all Biennales this one is run on a budget budget number here you know (laughs) and like you know like a thin or a thin budget rather and the thin budget is normally um you know, it seems enormous, but it's like it's in the tens of millions, not the we're not talking 50, mm-hmm. 50 million. Um, but anyway, the, the point is, is that um, 
that particular the 2013 Biennale was supposedly like better funded than any Biennale before that um, because Daka Cheneau, um had footed quite a bit of the bill. That's interesting. Um, I mean, I you know uh, considering that um, lessons from Athen ran way over budget, I haven't heard anything about Daka. So I wonder if you know maybe he could step in and <laughs> yeah foot the bill or sell a couple of uh, pieces from his collection. Well, I think it's helpful if you you know happen to have. A curator curating uh, that particular show with a pre-existing relationship with yeah. uh, Daka Chino, which Massimiliano <laughs> happened to have. So, um, but any in any event, the, this was a sort of a big money issue, um, and there are kind of more questions than there are answers. Yeah, and you you had brought up the fact that um, Kevin Boyst on Twitter, who is the uh, kind of director of the Art Prize that uh, happens in Grand Rapids, which is a very different kind of, let's say, radically democratic and premise um, art show. Um, you know, he, he you said you mentioned that he was a, a very kind of vocal critic of, of the Documenta kind of cost overruns. Oh, absolutely. I mean, watching Kevin Beist on, on Twitter is always very amusing. I recommend that uh, um, anybody who's, who's an avid user follows him because I think his commentary is usually quite smart. But um, so he was he took to uh, trolling the. Um, ask a curator hashtag uh, Twitter day someday last week and was like typing in all these mad comments about how a, a, an exhibition like the Documenta could go over by $5 million when the, there was 50, 50 million to begin with. So it's, uh, so he was kind of amusing to watch, but of course uh, Grand Rapids, our prize, like it's a, a massive art show that um, in some ways mimics a Biennale structure, um, except that it runs every year, but it does take over the entire city in the same way that uh, the Biennale might yeah, and we, take we both over have some, Yeah, we both have some history with it. You were a juror, I believe, one year? Uh, multiple to, years. Multiple years. Yeah. And I, I participated sort of tangentially. I was in a show at a um, university uh, gallery show that was happening at the same time as Art Prize, so we were entered into it. And, uh, you know, I made a piece that was just very much about my reservations about a, a, an art show that was sort of largely run um, on the contributions of the artists. And the financing sort of came after the fact in the, the form of the, the prizes given out both by democratic voting and the awards given by the jurors, um, which, you know, I guess my main problem with it is that it the, the show has become very successful and generates millions of dollars of revenue for the city of Grand Rapids and its businesses, but the prize money has sort of stayed the same. And if you kind of break it down, um, like less than 1% or 1% of all the participants receive some form of remuneration from the variety of awards. So it is a very successful show. It gives people a lot of opportunity to show their work, but it's built on the labor and time and resources of the artists, which I just find kind of backwards and sort of very representative of the, the kind of politics of the DeVos family. And and, and just to explain me a little mm. bit uh, here, like, you know, specifically what we're talking about is that uh, when um, an artist applies to Art Prize, they do not need to live within the city of Grand Rapids, but if they live outside the city, they have to pay for all the shipping and installation And certainly the production of the work the that they're making. There's not like a budget for creating a large-scale outdoor public sculpture that the good people of Grand Rapids get to enjoy for how long is the show up for? Is it... A month long, or the show is up for a month, mm. and then I think that the uh, the grand prize winners um, are on permanent display for a year. Okay. So, now I think the idea being that the uh, public and um, uh, juried prizes are then the uh, sort of representative art of that city yeah, for the uh, entire year. So they're always the the prize. <laughs> the people who administer the competition are always fearful that the public is going to decide that the giant wooden Loch Ness monster sculpture that's in the, the river is going to be voted like representative, like the best art of Grand yeah. Rapids, which is, uh, you know, understandably 
scary. Yeah, on the populist side, I mean, I remember the, the first iteration of it, it was only based on uh, the popular vote of the people in Grand That's Rapids. Right. So you had like a 20-foot Jesus winning, you had like a 20-foot wave winning, you know, works that kind of, maybe yeah, were not like the most weird, radical. weird, inflatable, or, shrimp-like thing that, that yeah. <laughs> was uh, which is which is why they brought in, uh, you know, they they brought in it, they brought in some of the the existing systems of the art world and selectivity to maybe provide another perspective of what art could be relative to, you know, it, it does beg the question how good um, democracy and art fit together. Um, they tend to be sort of different systems. And well, and I think if we look at the evolution of our prize too, like one of the things we've seen, or at least I feel like I've seen is like not a hell of a lot of progress on the part of the public to like um, choose uh, works of art that are um, maybe different than the Loch Ness Monster. Like there's all like when I was there, I think it was two years ago, like there was a living sculpture who was like reenacting a painting and this was like you know a more complicated version of works that this particular person had done before i think it was like a, a aluminum construction worker at one point so this is like a more like artified version of it but mm. still sort of the same crap so, yeah, I mean, it. you know, this this is probably not the, the best segue into it, but, um, you know, the, the Bruce High Quality Foundation University, the Free Art School, which has recently announced its closure, you know, it makes me think that what Grand Rapids also needs is not just the art show, but also, you know, some free art schools <laughs> for the people of Grand yeah. Rapids, you know. Uh, yeah, I mean, um, and just to sort of close up that last mm. uh, uh, segment, like... This is not to diminish the work that I think that the art prize people are doing. I think they're they're definitely fighting the good fight, um, and there has been some progress, but like we still are seeing a lot of like living sculpture winners and things like that. So. I, I agree, and I think you know the 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 art side of it. Things are there's a lot to admire, but when we kind of follow the money or think about its uh, art prize's connection, founding connection to the DeVos family, does raise some troubling political questions about our model or this proposed model versus, say, the European model that funds Documenta that may come from a tax base, you know, where there are, is public funding for the arts and artists. Um, and we can see that there's not like an easy answer uh, in either model, especially when you run seven million over budget or whatever. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So Bruce High Quality University, um, I think... William, you were going to talk about that a little bit. Uh, I'll explain a me bit a more. little bit. Um, yeah. So uh, the the uh, I became aware of the Bruce High Quality uh, Foundation, which is actually an anonymous artist collective that was started in the early aughts uh, through Thomas Seeley, our our radio broadcaster here, um, <laughs> our, our sound engineer. Um, uh, and and I had known of their work for a couple of years when they launched their Bruce High Quality. And at first, I always thought it was the Free University, but it's the Bruce High Quality Foundation University. Um, and which the, is free. Which is free. And uh, it it began its life. I'm not sure exactly where its first location was, but um, it was run out of the East Village for a couple of years before moving to a new location, I think two years ago, um, possibly three years ago, in Industry City, um, which has been the site of a lot of controversy. Um, Industry City uh, forced out a, a number of artists in 2013 and started bringing in tech companies and retail stores and really changing and sort of gentrifying uh, a commercial zone. Um, and this was also, just to add something, this was not just like... Uh, we raise the rents. Can you please leave? These were like giant rent increases, and can you please leave like right away? So it was not a kind of nice dismissal of the artist. I no, think. it just points to some of the complications that led to Seth Cameron, who was uh, sort of outed himself sort of recently as one of the founding members of Bruce High Quality, uh, released uh, an essay in the Brooklyn Rail, which also moved its offices uh, from Greenpoint uh, down to Industry City a few years ago um, and were involved in another controversy that maybe we can talk about. But um, Seth, Seth's essay in the Brooklyn Rail, interestingly enough, was titled Broken Toilet. 
Bruce High Quality Foundation University uh, is dead. And the announcement came as kind of a shock to a lot of us, I think, who um, there was a lot to admire with, with the free school. You know, it offered a lot of classes. It was sort of a constantly involve, evolving program, trying to find new alternative models to the ridicu- ridiculously expensive, you know, MFA programs that uh, force artists to take on an enormous amount of debt in many cases uh, to participate in the art world. So it, this school positioned itself as an alternative um, to formal arts education. Um, and that... Uh, I think inspired um, a lot of goodwill uh, in the art world uh, for the project, you know, um, despite any of the kind of questions about, well, I think there's a few questions we could kind of discuss, but right now I think the the sort of main thing is that, you know, the, the announcement that the school is closing um, shuts down uh, something that was a very kind of viable and lively alternative for people seeking to kind of continue their arts education instead of just going right into an MFA program. And in the essay, you know, uh, Seth points out that that was a conscious decision by the Bruce High Quality members to not pursue MFAs and to try to make the university uh, an alternative that they could kind of compare to their peers who were going into MFA programs. Um, So that sort of does sort of set the stage for um, this kind of discussion that people are having around the Bruce High Quality Foundation University. Right. And I mean, I guess like one question that had come up was uh, amongst you and I was, but was also like, you know, the members of the Bruce High Quality Foundation University were graduates of uh, um, Cooper Union and Cooper Union was embroiled in its uh, own controversy where the board members um, basically you know, pissed away their uh, endowment. And so now the university uh, is no longer free. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I also know that Seth Cameron teaches at Cooper Union um, and sort of, I know one of the models of his classes is to ask the students to imagine um, a, a utopian art school while they're, you know, in school paying tuition, which, you know, speaks to kind of some of the ironies and complexities of, of trying to run a, a free art school. I mean, honestly, that just sounds like some sort of sad punishment for students who have to pay. Like, I, I understand, like, the value of asking students to imagine things that they aren't currently experiencing but i don't know there's something about that that just makes me really sad yeah and i i I, you know i'm fairly cynical um often skeptical (laughs) of a lot of things that are happening in the art world because we often just don't know how things are funded and in the article you know uh seth points out that like the bruce high quality foundation university was funded partly uh through annual fundraising, which you have a lot of experience with of trying to keep an organization going. And they were able to raise about $300,000 a year through um, art auctions, which he admits were, you know, um, based on artists donating work and then selling it uh, and, you know, using that money. And it established a baseline for the program. And then it was subsidized further by the Bruce High Quality's own commercial art sales. And so they were represented for a while by Vito Schnabel, you know, son of painter Julian Schnabel. And so they had kind of had two foots in this kind of nonprofit um, sphere of education and another foot in the commercial art market. And, you know, it's been a question, like, I'm sort of wondering where the Bruce High Quality Foundation is now as a collective, if they're still sort of actively producing work, um, when some of their members like Seth are starting to exhibit their own individual work. So the kind of collective model is broken down, it seems, on many fronts. Well, Uh, I mean, I think that that's like, I, I mean, this has less to do with money, but like a collective breaking down is in many ways like sort of like very a very common thing because to work together for that long takes uh, a lot of energy and like um you know people's lives change they move they do different things like it's really difficult to maintain a a collective for as long I mean the fact that it, it existed for as long as it as it has is like kind of a you know a I don't want to say miracle exactly, but like it's it's been like 
kind of a gift to the New York art world because they really have contributed so much. I, I agree um, with that. I think that's, that is wonderful. I mean, there is a kind of miracle aspect to that. And I know there's a lot of pressures, but if we're talking about money, I mean, the, the art market collectives are the exception often to sell work in the art market where it really is built on individual, um, the success of individuals and they're kind of at this point i hate to say it but like they're brands you know well yeah i mean i mean this is a sort of i mean going back to the um european model one of the shows i remember seeing with uh boris nash of contemporary art daily back i don't know it was maybe like six or seven years ago but it was at charlottenburg and uh copenhagen mm. and there was a, a a list like a just sort of a caption beside this like artwork that and the caption listed all the names of the people and there was probably like 30 author names like for this particular video and like i just remember like for like watching forrest's brain explode because he was just like this would never exist in an american university because like their the funding structure is totally different so you know in order to get a lot of these kind of collective works like it would almost be too costly mm -hmm. um and that i think it, that's one of the big losses of you know bruce high yes. quality foundation is that like you know how many other collective groups do do we see that that have been successful like both in their career and in the market that that um exist like i I mean, I can't even think of one off the top of my head that's like more than, you know, uh, four members. <laughs> right. Like Superflex or I mean, you know, there's not that well, yes. many collectives and they tend to be much smaller. Um, I, you know, I, I'd go back to Seth's essay in the Brooklyn Rail um, that, you know, he he uses the metaphor of a kind of broken bathroom. Um, at the kind of end of semester party or the end of the year party. Um, be, you know, he sort of points, uses this sort of very ugly metaphor that somebody left a giant turd in the bathroom and somebody else, you know, had the wherewithal to make a sign that just said broken toilet and put it on the door and shut the door. And Seth's pointing out that there's a problem that still exists. The, the turd in the room, the high cost of MFAs that force students to develop their kind of individual brand instead of maybe experimenting or thinking differently about what art could be. They're really orienting themselves to this market to pay for this kind of high cost. And so he ends this essay on this kind of very sort of sort of sad note that like, you know, the, the turd is still in the, the toilet, you know, in the bathroom. Um, and that problem is still there for other people to kind of try to address or figure I mean, out. Look, the thing is about that metaphor, I think it's a, it works for that particular piece. But I think like generally it's, it's maybe not the right metaphor because like there's an easy fix fix for the turd in the toilet. You flush it, right? Like it's no, everybody no. knows how to flush the, the toilet. See, but this is part of the thing that when the system is broken and you can't just flush the problem away. Well, and so structurally, there's structurally. a problem that he's sort of talking about. And, and it's, you know. I do think in the essay, he's sort of referring to these revelers and party goers and that the education was not just like this kind of pure thing that so there was another. So you're saying that it was not a giant turd that, that plugged up the toilet, but rather the plumbing was the bad. The plumbing was bad. Okay. You know, um, but there, you know, he sort of does frame it in the sense that there was a lot of revelry happening. And I think he's, you know, the, the piece is sort of great because he's, he's not trying to say, look, maybe we had some students who were just there to party um, or that the school itself was becoming too social or something. It wasn't as serious, but there's a kind of implication um, using this whole metaphor and this party that maybe the school had changed in some way and um, wasn't the place that they had wanted it to be. And he, before he ends the essay, he does say that, you know, he feels like, um, perhaps we got lazy and then in you know uh, italics he says perhaps i got lazy and wasn't putting as much as i could into the school itself but you know we know people that have worked there and have really poured their time and their creative energy and their lives into that project so it may not have been a question of what an individual could do um it it does speak to the kind of structural problems with the plumbing in both our yeah but i still feel like you know yeah there's like a structural problem but you call a plumber right like there's like there's still a have solution. money plumbers are expensive 
And how do you okay, fix yeah, the Okay, yeah, but the point <laughs> the point is is there is like a roadmap even if you can't like even if you don't have the funds to do it or well, something like that. But like I th- I mean, it's the question I guess where I'm going with this though is like do you think that if there was a sort of enough money to go around then then we would not like um if inequality let's say was less of an issue then we would not have these um these issues with education um i think it would be a, a step in the right direction clearly um you know when we talk about the inequality it's like there's more money in the world than there's ever been before it just happens to be concentrating into a giant pool sort of sitting at the top of uh, society and it's not being reinvested back into our education systems our healthcare systems our infrastructural systems and we need to get at that money and you know um uh, but like would, we would can't it just fix ask, it with money we just can't ask people to fucking work all the time like in order to like reinvest this money like because i feel like well there's there's two models to do a lot of talk about like you know we have to work really hard and be really vigilant to redistribute like to to solve this problem of inequality but like like i feel like the story again and again and again is like we believe that that's the case we work as hard as we can to solve it, and then we get fucking burnt out, and yeah, we can't well, do it anymore. What you're describing is the the, but, the you're, you're describing Bruce High Quality Foundation University, where you have a small group of individuals who use um, self funding, kind of crowdsourcing their own personal finances, a kind of philanthropy, and they apply it to a problem. It works for a while until it doesn't work because the system's fundamentally broken. And I think what you're pointing to is, you know, you we do a lot of work, you know, individually, and we're trying to do something. Um, that that really would be could be solved. Let's just say through um, taxation, you know, kind of progressive taxation, where it's not we're not doing the work; it's the work of government and our elected officials to kind of set up um, just a, to redistribute the wealth back into systems that could um, help a lot of people, and not we wouldn't have to do that work as individuals, right? And I think that you know, people we talk about what neoliberal economics look like. And in this case, you know, um, Bruce High Quality in some way was a kind of neoliberal solution. We'll do it ourselves. We'll do it with some philanthropy. We'll do it with some crowdsourcing. And we see the end results. And so, you know, I think Seth is sort of pointing that the system is still kind of broken. Well, yeah, because I think, like, the the moral of the story is that, like, you can only rely on individuals until you can't. Right. right? And whereas we're human this, and we die. Whereas, <laughs> but whereas a government system is set up yeah. so that we don't have to rely on the will of individuals, they live beyond us well, and, and it's beyond a, our, it's, like... It's true, but now, you know, expectations you, or, you brought up at the beginning of the podcast that, you know, we're in a, a different political reality right now where, you know, uh, we've sort of lost the federal government to Trump and the Republican Party. So it's really hard to even imagine the government being a kind of site of solution where right now it seems to be a site of creating more problems for most of us. Well, and, and I mean, I think that goes into the question of like, what do we as arts workers and artists and, and curators, like, where do we, where is our energy best so spent? I think a lot of people, um, and I, and you can disagree with me about this, but I think a lot of us are looking for new political organizations um, to put our time and energy towards. So, you know, I registered for the Democratic Socialist Association. I have not done much work myself for the group because I have a lot of other work to do, but I am a dues-paying member, and I will vote for the DSA candidates. Um, I almost dropped out of the Democratic Party, and then I realized I can't do that because the Democratic Socialists are putting their candidates on ballot in the Democratic Party, so they don't have to spend their time and energy creating new ballot lines, which is incredibly time-consuming and costs money. So, you know, I think and that for me right I now, it's more perhaps like. You know, I think also perhaps that's a battle that like can't be won. Um, like if it's, you know, rebuilding something from scratch. Yeah, building is, a new political party is probably a twenty-five year plan, right? And we're talking about it's much the next more than two that. years. I mean, yeah. I think if we look at the, I mean, if we look at the uh, NDP party and the Green Party in Canada, like they, 
um, have existed for a lot longer than that. The NDP party or the Green Party has one seat in Canada. Yeah, and so. I think, you know, pragmatically and realistically, the DSA is the more it grows, the more members it has. We're still talking 30,000, not, you know, 30 million. Um, with 30,000 people, what it can start to do is just put pressure on the Democratic Party to get that kind of centrist, you know, we I've watched it kind of the party leadership sort of shifting even more centrist, which is terrifying right now. It's like, that's not the solution that a lot of us are looking for. So I think part of the job is to pull the Democratic Party back to the left a little bit, you know. Um, and that obviously, there's a lot of divisions right now. Um, it's it's a pretty riven time, I would say, you know. And I experienced that personally um, with people that I like very much, you know. Uh, so I think there's a lot of work to be done. And I know it's hard, it's sort of tough because we're being pulled in so many directions. Speaking of directions, mm. um, I think one of the last uh, items on the docket was uh, the Long Island City and the development there. Um, mm -hmm. Last week, um, I uh, tweeted that I had just uh, I just passed a banner that I saw off the Seven Line that uh, describes the condo development in Long Island City as New York's latest art installation. And and I sort of immediately responded uh, to your tweet saying artists we're not doing a good job. Right. Um, and just a tiny bit more, uh, explain me here. Um, the condo development I was looking at was, uh, at five points, which was a much contested, uh, site. There was a lot of, uh, graffiti on the uh, beautiful street art. <laughs> yes. The beautiful street art on the, on the face of, uh, um, of the buildings that were torn down uh, for these condo developments. So the the line, New York's latest uh, art installation, is kind of aggressive and mean and shitty, I think. Yeah, and I, I, I when I was responding to your tweet, I was thinking about the work that um, I've been doing with the Artist Studio Affordability Project run by Jenny Dubnow. Right. Um, and one of the frustrations with the group is it's been hard to attract artists to come out to protest to get artists to support um, policies like the Small Business Job Survival Act, which gives commercial lease, lease negotiation rights to tenants. So if that's get, why you were saying yes, that artists and, were failing. Right. And, and, you know, and also, but, you know, when you asked to, you, you sort of, that's, you said, explain me. And <laughs> uh, I, I figured Twitter is probably not the best place to get into the kind of nuance that also, artists aren't doing so good right now. You know, in this kind of system where we're watching galleries close, we're watching a kind of um, shuffle of, of artists from one gallery to another, sort of in an upward manner, um, and and kind of the middle class of art galleries shutting down. I think that you know the conditions that you kind of pointed out at the beginning of the podcast. There's more artists than ever, and there's less sort of venues and opportunities, even within the market, that it's kind of bifurcating to really high prices and a kind of perpetual low, you know, emerging scene where it's very hard to kind of make any money or keep things going. So I do think, you know, it's, artists do have responsibility potentially to get more involved politically outside of their studios. I'm not encouraging artists to um, make political work because that's structurally the system's probably, it's maybe not the best way to um, be political right now, but I would encourage artists to kind of learn more about not only the uh, ASAP or the SBJSA, but like look into the People's Cultural Plan that was recently kind of offered um, in sort of protest or to, to make better the city's first ever cultural plan uh, for New York, which was that one. The city's was sort of authored in part by two real estate you know, uh, developers or, you know, firms connected to the real estate industry. And what you saw happening in Long Island City, I think, really speaks to the way in which real estate uses art to kind of art wash um, activities, that, you know, the developing luxury housing for very wealthy people at the expense, literally, of artists, the whole Five Points community of artists that were working on that building, you know, it's destroyed. Um, so that's a really, it's like a terrible sort of metaphor for uh, how real estate uses the arts in 
New York City. Well, and I think one thing that I think um, can be very difficult for um, for artists, but is sort of a symptom of the of the problem, um, is that by the time you hear about these issues, like it's often too late to really do anything about them because the land has been bought, the um, you know the, the deals have already been cut. And you just like sort of like, well, wait a minute, I I don't support this, but it's it's too late, um, and so it's I think it's important um, when you can to go out to the community board meetings um, in your neighborhood and that sort of thing to keep up to date. Although, I mean, those too can be very frustrating. Yeah, I, I, no. I was just talking earlier um, to you about how like Long Island City, the community board there is like they're all super excited about the new developments. So like, there's like absolutely like no pushback against um, bids or, or anything or any of the new developments that are happening. Um, And there's no infrastructure. Right. Well, I I agree. I agree. And I think one of the things is that first impulse of wanting to go to the community board meetings Mm -hmm. yourself um, will inevitably lead to the frustration you describe, because if you go and you see that kind of, Thing happening with the community board being very excited about this, um, I would I would instead encourage artists who want to support this to kind of support ASAP. You know, because you only really need to send a couple of people who are educated on the issue, who can speak up at the community board meetings, that represent a larger constituency of people. And the community boards and politicians get really nervous when somebody represents a larger group of people. Um, it's not just about showing up with numbers. It's also about speaking clearly you know, to the community board and saying, you know, you can go and look in the West Village right now. You can go look in parts of Manhattan where the development went up and there are no businesses because the rents are too high. You know, so you may be wishing for something that you think is going to really develop Long Island City and it may t- not turn out the way you want. And the beloved mom and pop stores you have, small businesses could all be pushed out. And so when people hear that, they might slow down and kind of reconsider some of their attitudes of what they're supporting. And that requires informed representatives. And I think that's something that like ASAP can do on behalf of artists and small businesses. So I'm hoping like, you know, this is a kind of constant work of education that we have to do as well. And I would want to save artists time from having to like personally go to every community board meeting when we need to do it in a sort of more organized manner. You know, you're absolutely right. And you're a great spokesperson uh, for ASAP. Um, and I should just mention that we're both members mm-hmm. of that group um, and very proud members of that. I yes. think the organization does a lot of really great work. And Jenny Jeff now has... Um, Engine. <laughs> yeah, she's... She's really transformed that group. Um, so, uh, well, in, I think in closing, though, you know, I experienced what you experienced a little bit differently last night. I went to the opening of the New York uh, Art Book Fair at PS One in Long Island City, and on the way out, you know, there was a large crowd of people, and a lot of them were just kind of rubbernecking and looking up at the kind of condos that are rising up and looming over literally, you know, PS One, and it just. You know, people were kind of, you could hear comments about like, what is this? What happened? I haven't seen this. This is kind of crazy. And that development, you know, I mean, it feels kind of threatening even to like PS1. And and I was there sort of, you know, ironically for the launch of the Daily Gentrifier. <laughs> Dishko, <laughs> this is my favorite thing. Yes. <laughs> Dishko Petrovich's um, new, new publication. Um, uh, you know, that, that not only speaks to the kind of gentrification and the East Coast gentrification, which is one side of the broadsheet, but also the West Coast gentrification happening in Boyle Heights in L.A., um, which, you know, the fight isn't over there yet. It seems like it's just beginning. And one of one of Dushko's friends who was present and who lives in L.A. was just saying that the tenor and the tone of it is much more divisive um, between artists in the the existing community and Boyle Heights than I think we've experienced here in New York. Um, And, you know, the person was very worried about where it was going and how art was really seen as the enemy, where I still think in New York, a lot of the activist groups um, still see artists as possible partners in the fight against gentrification and not just agents of gentrification. And I, it, it was worrying to kind of hear that if 
groups in Boyle Heights are having success in pushing art galleries out, we're going to start experiencing that here because people see the tactic as being successful. We'll say, no, you know, these artists aren't willing to partner with us. We need to, we need to embargo them. We need to push them out of our communities. And that creates another adversarial relationship amongst people who have very common economic interests, common social interests in, you know, affordable housing, you know, um, and and what kind of infrastructure is built around these giant condos you know you, you brought that up earlier that like there's a lot of development in lic but are the developers going to build schools you know are they going to add subway lines because you're on that seven line and that's a right well there's commu- a there's a trolley line that's <laughs> <laughs> promising to move very slowly <laughs> Oh, um, and serve very few people, but we've got that in the in the pipeline. Um, and and I think one thing you know we don't want to lose the um, the art amidst all this kind of political strife and turmoil. Um, I know that you know we're at the beginning of the new season, the new fall season. I I went to Chelsea and did a 19th Street to 26th Street uh, kind of slow crawl, um, and you went from. 23rd up to 28th or 28th to 23rd? 20, 23rd up to 28th, but I did also hit the Carol Walker show at uh, Brett's. Okay, so I think so. that that's one we could, we, we've both seen and we could agree. Um, well, what did you think of it? Um, so, uh, you know, Carol Walker, uh, prior to opening the show, um, released an artist statement, um, which had uh, basically said, like, look, I can't do the, the representation. I'm a I'm an African American artist. I can't do the representation um, of black artists for all of us. And and, and then Jerry Saltz wrote uh, a piece that, which I didn't read. I just saw the headline, but I think he called Kara Walker show like the greatest art of the 20th century to some yes. degree. Which it's like he didn't read her press release or care to acknowledge that the title of her show was about not being the standard bearer of you know, African-American experience or elevating one artist show to be the greatest show of the 20th century. I went to the show. There were some large crowds. I tweeted that she won the uh, audience engagement award uh, for the fall season. I went I just to the show as away. well. There yeah, was, was uh, there was also large crowds when I was there. Um, so just to say that there are multiple people who have experienced large crowds in Sycamore Jenkins when the other galleries are vacant. The Definitely, um, people are going in hordes to see the show. Yeah, and, and which I, is um, basically made up of like large scale watercolors. Yeah, which are um, a move away from just the silhouette work, which she was sort of you know known for, which established her reputation. So this actually involves some level of you know painting <laughs> within the uh, the the forms. Um, I think she has done those but before. Yeah, um, I mean, I've done other work too, but I'm pretty much known as the dude who makes like, you know, Trumploy letters and lists about the art world. So, uh, you know, I think, you know, her room at the Broad in L.A. is just the silhouette work. Um, so it was a kind of break in that sense. Right. Um, but these works, I think, were I, the things that I found most notable about them was their violence. Yeah. Um, so there were uh, figures. There were black figures that that were like sort of swimming in pool of pools of blood. There were white figures who that were in the process of being dismembered. Um, it was a very uh, violent show. Well, my favorite form of violence was in, within the show. Was she had a circular canvas that. Um, for me, kind of referenced both like a Damien Hirst spin painting or a more um, gentle Michelle Grabner kind of, you know, radial drawing. But, you know, kind of swimming out of this, you know, field was a, a very angry black woman. <laughs> and I was like, if you could possess contemporary art, you know, with a kind of oppositional spirit, maybe this was the painting for me. And uh, that that left me, you know, I left feeling sort of good about that part of the show um i just didn't feel like i I walked out having experienced the greatest art of the 20th century and nor did and i feel like kara gave me permission through her press release and artist statement to walk in that show and not have that expectation but jerry you know put that back on you know her show um and because he's jerry salts what else is he gonna do well you know you he likes Carol Walker quite a bit. He really likes the work, and he he likes a lot more 
art than the average person i think so he's he's like, he's our he's our cheerleader of art you know yeah he's uh <laughs> yeah so he does that job very well but um but in this case i didn't really agree with him either um but i i think for me like um earlier this year i had seen uh emma moore perform in a, uh, an opera at uh can the, you explain me a little bit more about the artist yes um so uh, M. Lamar is a, he's a black gay artist. Um, when he performed uh, his opera at uh, the Abrams Art Center in January, he was wearing like this like thick leather jacket, like tight pants. Like he looked, uh, I hate to say it, he did look a little menacing. Um, he sung this song that like literally shook the building he's in front of this piano and this song it takes like it's an opera it takes an hour to tell the story of course the story is actually quite short and it's about these um uh black slaves who have been killed by their owners and they're in the grave and they're brought up to life again and then their job as as uh, zombies is to kill all white people which is um, kind of wonderful, like a historical footnote. I mean, you know, the, the original, you know, zombies appeared long before um, uh, oh, the director who recently passed away, um, George Romero, right? Zombies came out of like Haitian folklore, you know, so it's traditionally black, you know, so, so white people don't own uh, the zombie. So it's fitting, I think, that <laughs> it's it's African American zombies rising up to just kill the white oppressor. Yeah, and like the music, like it's just like shaking the walls. You really are afraid. It's like it's it was just I I found it a completely moving experience. Mm-hmm. And to sort of contrast that, where you have. Um, Sort of it, like African American slave figures, like holding the heads of their owners and things like that. But like they're in this like sort of white cube box that's mm-hmm. like, um, you know, you you know that the bulk of the buyers of this white at work are white. Yeah. Like you know that the 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 white cube <laughs> symbolizes whiteness and white power to a mm-hmm. certain degree. Like yeah, galleries are not the, a neutral space. Museums yeah, are not neutral and, spaces. And, uh, you know, and the nice thing about the Abrams Art Center, you know, he's he was performing in a basement, basically, like, <laughs> you know, like, the, like, it, it is a performance center. It has those things, but like, the, it was a less charged space. And I just felt like this particular art, like struggled with the, the against the politics of the space, right. and it did not necessarily work with it right and I, I think on that note i certainly would encourage people to go and see the art um and make up their own you know minds about whether it's the greatest art of the 20th century or not um during my art tour um i think two shows that i would probably encourage people to like just kind of skip if you don't want to spend your time is uh, christian Marclay's um phone installations and i i remember sort of seeing that and thinking wow this is so terrible. I just, Christian Markley, what are you doing? And then uh, further along on my journey, I encountered Tom Friedman's show. Just just to go back there, exactly what were you seeing? They were like styrofoam? I don't even know what they were made out of. I wasn't curious enough to find out what the materials were. Which is a problem, right? right? I don't care. So there was not going to be a lot of opportunity to get some meaning out of the materials. Um, But it was a large room with lots of white telephone handsets from old you know phones that might have had a rotary dial um just kind of organized on the floor and in the other room there was a kind of one phone with a long coiling you know cord um and it was a little bit funnier it had an element of humor to it but later i got to the tom friedman show at loring augustine and it was a lot of white projections kind of a ghostly whiteness like the ghost the gallery was possessed by a white the spirit of a white male artist um there was a game of pong being projected on the wall so like kind of white on white just slow moving pong and in the back there were like presidential heads brought you know sort of projected on the wall ending with trump and this kind of just like again these little 
presences, like these kind of ghosts. And all I could think of on my way out was like, man, he phoned it in. And I was like, oh, shit. Oh, you no. Know, like, oh, no. The Markley show. <laughs> the Markley show is a metaphor for, uh, you know, maybe the feelings of, of some, I don't know, white fragility or something. And like literally the Markley show, there was a sign. It was like, do not walk in between, around, near white fragility. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, is this it? Is this... Uh, anyway, so those are two shows that I would skip, and uh, one show that I, I think people should stop by in, uh, The Law Offices of Amy. I, you may know how to pronounce the three-name gallery title. I just want to skip oh, it. Oh, I think it's Ammeringer and Yo, but is it... There's McInerney, a th- something. Oh, McInerney. McInerney. Yeah, McInerney. So, so, so Amy. Yeah. Uh, there's a, a show of paintings by an artist named Franklin Evans, whose work I've known in the past is sort of room size you know he'll take uh, a room and just kind of tape it off with lots of multicolor tape and make these kind of immersive installations and it was really nice to see some paintings of his that had a kind of art historical context and a kind of um there was the same energy and formal kind of beauty to the work but there was something there that i would want to go back and spend more time with and kind of piece together this art history that he's he's depicting in the paintings uh you know at the same time i was the only person in the gallery so uh you know on some level the, you know there's a lot of energy at the kara walker show but it was a saturday it was like two o'clock and chelsea you know there were a lot of people on the high line they weren't necessarily flooding into the galleries right well so um the one show that i would uh, uh definitely a- advise people to skip is the myelin show at pace gallery <laughs> um that was super terrible she is apparently explore continuing her exploration of water um through uh, uh using a large number of recycled glass green glass marbles and uh creating this like web-like structure that uh, runs along the floor and the uh and the ceilings it sort of resembles a Tara Donovan piece if she just didn't have quite enough materials to make something right. reasonable. Right. I mean, I walked to that show and walked out and thought, I'm just not that into topography. Yeah, it's terrible. So it's uh, the works are, you know, apparently uh, mapping the Nile River, I think this particular piece is. Um, and it's called Ebb and Flow. And I think I've told you enough to just, like, stay away from that particular show. Um Two shows I'd recommend, uh, Robert Motherwell and Paul Kasman, their early paintings. Robert Motherwell, I think, typically creates garbage paintings, like almost consistently. <laughs> he's like super overrated. So when, um, and there's a, like, he's also super prolific. So like the secondary market is flooded with his garbage. So the fact that Paul Kasman like, <laughs> like found these Fitting. early paintings yeah. and they're like, there's it's a small selection and they're all good there's this uh yellow abstract painting that sort of looks kind of circus like and and by good do you mean like they look like they're good representations of motherwell's garbage (laughs) (laughs) no i think they're like squarely good paintings like they're well painted they're abstract work so they i think the evaluation for those types of things is like a little bit difficult to pin down but um you know i think a lot of times for me i've always been like does this guy even have any kind of a wrist like what like why why are people responding to the work and these were smaller scaled Mm. works where the compositions were fully resolved um and that's something that like it sort of seemed like he just lost interest in doing that in some of the later works so these were you know fully rendered and resolved and uh the um the other person i would or a show i'd recommend seeing is uh, celeste dupay uh spencer i don't know if i said that name right at marlboro gallery dupay dupay yeah um so marlboro has a, a show of this uh, particular artist it's a, a lot of figurative work um strong painter again and the the paintings they kind of fit a genre of um figurative work that I find interesting that it, like these are people who are awkward. They look like the social art outcasts that you may or may not have been friends with in high school because they might have actually been too weird for you. And they're they're nudes. So well, uh, you know, or I, the, one of the paintings. I did visit Marlboro and I saw the show. And in the kind of milieu of um, identity-based work, I was like, oh, white trash art. 
and and that you know does kind of break down a kind of monolithic sense of whiteness i mean there are many gradations of class and regional whiteness and the peculiarities of you know kind of um but I, I think that, that what gives those painting their charge is that kind of outcastness or the, the, the kind of ugliness of the people, um, you know, and, and that, that kind of saves them from just being a kind of like, I don't know, banal social realism or something. Yeah, so, or sort of like a, another kind of notch in the hipster. Yeah, and it, uh, you know, it's kind of a cool show, you know. You know, it's like a car cruising down a highway into the unknown. You know, it's like it's got a little Twin Peaks action going on too. Yeah, so um, I recommend that show. So oh, and the last one that I would uh, recommend um, it's the uh, Sanford Bigger show, um, and I can't remember exactly which gallery it was at. Maybe three hundred three. Marion Bosky. Bosky, yeah, Bosky East. Yeah. yeah. So the Sanford Bigger show, um, I wasn't as attracted to the objects in the front of the gallery, but there was sort of a wonderful multi-channel video in the sort of back corner that kind of froze me uh, with another viewer. And we both, you know, shared like a five minute kind of arrested moment of watching this play out. And, um, it, it, you know, it made the whole trip down that street worth the, uh, the time. Yeah, that was a tough street. I saw that show, but I saw it at the opening. So I saw mostly people in front of artworks. Right. So, uh, Anyway, um, I think that just about wraps up our yeah. show for the day. Um, look for us two weeks from now on Mondays on iTunes, and we'll see you soon. All right. Thanks, Patty.